0: Senior executives know that to stay on top of your game, you need to constantly challenge and develop yourself. IMI's new senior executive experience delivers future-focused learning. Gaining valuable tools and insights in areas like organization resilience and digital transformation to shape the future of your organization. Visit imi.ie for details. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another
1: episode of the IMI Talking Leadership podcast. Today, I'm joined by Adam Kingle, who is an author, speaker, and educator, enabling human-centric leaders to navigate a turbulent world. A globally renowned expert in innovating management practice and strategy and leading the modern workforce, Adam has recently authored a book entitled Sparking Success, which discusses creativity and leadership and the world of business. So today, we're going to delve a little bit into that concept of creativity. So, Adam, if you could introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us why you decided to write this book.
0: Yeah, thank you for having me. Uh, Well, I am an author, an educator, advisor, and keynote speaker. Um, I wrote this book because, gosh, about five or so years ago, maybe a little bit longer, uh, I noticed some unusual statistics, uh, and both came from two different big four consulting firms. One firm uh, put out a study of CEOs of top global companies asking, what are your top priorities? And 79% of them uh, articulated some version of creativity and innovation as a top three priority. At the same time, another big four consultancy did another survey, but this time asking just the rank and file, right? Employees of large global companies, how good is your company at creativity and innovation? And 94% (laughs) responded that we are terrible at it. I'm not sure there's a bigger gap, therefore, in our business life today between an aspiration and a reality. So that made me curious, and I wanted to find out, is there, uh, are there ways in which we can improve the creative capacity of our team's of our organizations. Now, my original career was in the arts. I worked in media, entertainment, et cetera. And I knew that we were doing things in those environments that were highly creative, that supported creativity, that enabled brainstorming, uh, that allowed the, the odd and the wonderful idea to seep through. And I was wondering if there was anything in those ways in which we held conversations and the way in which our leaders behaved, which were unique, because it was an arts organization that you couldn't possibly do in a so-called traditional industry. So I was trying to figure out if you could, the same things you were doing in the playhouse could be applied to the warehouse in other words. And what I learned is of course, all these micro habits are general leadership habits that can be applied no matter the industry. So the book was essentially became what can we learn from these highly creative leaders in arts organizations about the micro habits that any leader in practice uh, to improve the creative quotient of their team.
1: Thanks very much Adam. I think it's so interesting that you talk about the way creativity is kind of focused upon in certain industries versus in more kind of traditional industries or you know the likes of finance or the more the more kind of corporate sectors so it's really interesting to hear that and now Before we delve a bit more into creativity, I want to talk about a few of the problems we're facing at work and then we can move on to how we can combat those through creativity. So in a survey, only 13% of people reported that they were engaged with their work. 63% said they were not engaged and an alarming 24% said that they are actively disengaged. So in your opinion, what is causing that disconnect?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. And I believe those statistics come from the Gallup organization, which does these surveys of hundreds of different uh, organizations, almost every country on the planet, hundreds of thousands of employees. So it's a really rigorous survey. The first problem is essentially ennui. In other words, managers don't care enough about engagement to fix it. I know that sounds like a very provocative statement, but let's just think about that. Let's unpack this for a second. Let's say you and I, were teachers, professional teachers, and we went to a teacher conference and someone stood up and said, only 13% of our students last year got smarter. The rest made no difference whether they came to school or not, or in fact, they got stupider. Well, we would be up in arms. We would be saying, what do we have to do in order to make teaching um, more effective and to get kids to want to learn? Or let's say, for example, we were doctors and we went to a medical conference and someone stood up at this conference and said, well, I'm afraid, ladies and gentlemen, fellow doctors, that only 13% of our patients last year got better. The rest either stayed exactly the same, no matter what treatment you gave them, or they died. We would be appalled. The problem is when you share those statistics that you, that you have just shared with managers, what you generally get is a grunt, a sigh, and a shrug of the shoulders. So the first thing is that we are far too complacent about our managerial disabilities in engaging our people. The second part of this has to do with our very identity as managers. We are still um, married to these paradigms from the industrial revolution about what it means to manage. If you look at a thesaurus and find the word manage, in almost any language on the planet, one of the first synonyms you will see is to control. And we still consciously or unconsciously think about management as to control, which implies there's no activity related to helping people feel more inspired, to feel more relevant, to feel that they're achieving their purpose. So a big part of it has to do that we have um, inadequately defined what it means to lead others. There's some radical DNA-type work that has to be done for us to start to address this problem in a sustainable way.
1: Really interesting to hear what you're saying. And I guess creativity will really be at the heart of starting to re-engage people in their work, especially as this kind of fourth industrial revolution is on the way and the general thinking is that the place of humans amongst this kind of technology like generative AI and the likes will really be within relationships and creativity, You know, the sort of things that the technology is not able to do. But creativity is often actively discouraged as far back as school. So why do you think it's important that CEOs and other senior leaders really possess these characteristics of innovation, adaptability, and creativity?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, I think every, every leader should be concerned with creativity because every leader, no matter what industry they're in, are trying to make their organization more relevant tomorrow than it is today, to contribute more value to its stakeholders that tomorrow than today. But too often, particularly when things get tough, leaders tend to retract their innovation. Let's just stick to our knitting. And as a result, the company becomes less competitive, less able to be relevant, less able to compete rather than what do we need to be doing in terms of new products and services or new business models or new management models Um, That's what AI, for example, is doing, right? Constant generation and regeneration. But these elements have to do with how we relate to and understand human beings, be they customers, team members, etc. This very human act of helping to enhance relevance and value is a creative act. So it doesn't matter what industry or function you're in, you should care about creativity. I'm very passionate about this topic. I probably wouldn't have written a book if if I wasn't. But this is certainly not something which is only relegated either to the arts or to media or to the creative or knowledge economies.
1: It was really interesting to read in your book where you mentioned that some of the principles of innovation or improvisation really relate to leadership. So there were quite a lot of principles that you spoke about, so we don't have to go through all of them. But can you tell us a bit about how some of those principles of improvisation can be used within leadership?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll share, I'll share one. Um, Uh, One key, and I've done a lot of improv in my day. I I actually performed in a number of improv groups. I directed an improv group. And um, when I interviewed other professionals in the improv world and thinking about its application to business, I found so many of the tools that we use, the structures, the habits of great improv could and should be used uh, in the boardroom or in in the meeting room and in business. One is the simple phrase, yes, and. So let me just unpack that for a minute. Fart, the most common phrase that we generally hear from managers and businesses, the phrase yes, but, right? We, we sort of think of that as a polite way of saying, no, your idea stinks. Sit down, shut up. Please don't come to me again with any new ideas. Even worse is if they say, with respect. Oh, then, then you know you're in trouble. Um, but so yes, but is really just a polite no. And, and managers who use yes, but frequently should have no right to complain that after a while, they say no one ever comes to me with good ideas anymore. Well, of course not. You discourage people every time they came to you with a new idea. Whenever someone raises an idea, it is inevitably tied up with their ego. Now you don't have to adopt the idea, but you should give the other person the respect and the consideration to explore the idea, if only for a few seconds. And beginning your sentence with yes and, in other words, okay, let's just play this out for a bit, is respectful to the other person. It says, your idea is worthy of my time. Even if it's just the the 32nd trip in the elevator, you don't have to execute the idea just because someone raises it with you. What you do have to do is recognize that great ideas are generally the product of a numbers game. So this whole idea of inspiration, striking the top of our head like lightning from Zeus's hand is on the whole mythological. And I don't mean that just Zeus is a myth, but it's a myth that that kind of a genius, perfectly formed idea comes to us fully formed. It just doesn't happen. Generally, great ideas are iterative. We start with 100 mediocre ideas and we take a handful of those ideas and we work with them. We mold them. We craft them. We, d- we debate them. And then one rises to the top. And then we continue iterating that and improving that. And ultimately that becomes a great idea. But all that is predicated on your being open to and created fora where people would suggest a hundred ideas to begin with.
1: That's something really good to consider for leaders, you know, taking that idea of it's not yes, but, but it's yes, and, and helping them kind of bring out their own creativity. So now that we know one tip that um, that leaders can embody to start helping their team members with creativity, can you give us one thing that leaders can do when they walk into the office or they start up a call on a Monday morning, one specific task that they can do to foster the creativity within their team members?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one that comes to mind, which is so simple. So again, this does not require time, money, or even effort, is when you walk into that office on Monday morning uh, and you're going to enter a a conversation where maybe some new ideas are being posed, maybe an igniting question you can ask would be something like, well, how would so-and-so approach this problem? Let me give you an example. Let's say you work for an office supply company and you're designing a new desk lamp. And you want uh, uh, new ideas for the design of the lamp. Instead of just saying, okay, people, give me a new idea for the desk lamp, after which, of course, we know they all all stare at you blankly because it's a hard question to answer. Make it easy for them. So give them a prompt. Say something like, okay, people, how would Salvador Dali design our next desk lamp? Now all of a sudden people have that lens, that perspective in their mind. And then maybe you'll get answers like, oh, maybe we take the stem of the lamp and it coils around itself and creates a knot or something unusual and abstract like that. Or what if you said, okay, everyone, what would our next desk lamp be like if we asked Jackson Pollock to design it? And then people might say, well, let's say then the shade of the lamp is a neutral color, but it's spattered with all kinds of different bright colors as if someone just threw buckets of paint on it. Ah, okay. Once you change the perspective and introduce someone else and that it just ignites people's imagination and all of a sudden they're freed from the assumptions and the precedents of the past. So all of these seem like really simple techniques, yes and, or you know, how would Salvador Dali do this? But what that does is it gives people permission to think outside the proverbial box. And it really is igniting. You might think, well, that's a limitation. I have to think about it through the lens of Dali. No, actually it it gives you more ideas. It reminds me of the composer and conductor Leonard Bernstein who said, to have a great idea, two things are needed. um, A plan and not quite enough time. In other words, creating a bit of a restriction or a bit of a lens through which to tackle a challenge can be helpful rather than uh, hurtful. We did, I did some exercises like yes and like you know how would so-and-so tackle the challenge with an Antibedean mining services company. And this is you know this is as traditional as you can get in terms of industry. And I worked with the ExCO. And these were just a couple of the things that they said they were gonna take away over the course of the week. We did all kinds of other things, strategic thinking, marketing strategy, et cetera. But we also talked a little bit about creative habits. And they said, okay, we're gonna do yes and. A week later, when I asked the direct reports of this expo, uh, how's it going? They said, what are you doing with these people? They're, they're, they're so open, they're, they're, they're making great suggestions. They, they're curious about me. And all we did was give them, if you will, some verbal ticks." that would help ignite um, greater creativity. So it's just a small amount of effort that can have an outweighed return.
1: Adam, some really good practical things that our leaders can go and do. And I hope that everyone listening to this is going to take some of that advice next time they're in the office or next time they're on a call with their team. I want to move on now to talk a little bit about the concept of storytelling. And I think that there are certain professions, so marketing being one, or anything that's in the arts or entertainment where storytelling is seen as a key skill. But I think that it's sometimes overlooked when it comes to senior leaders in more traditional organizations. So can you tell us why you think it's so important that leaders are good storytellers?
0: Yeah, well, storytelling is a a classic structure. And that's really is when we say, be a better storyteller, we're, we're talking about how to add some structure into what you're saying, into a narrative. And it helps people connect the why, the what, and the how. Generally, poor uh, uh, storytelling just covers one of those areas. Generally, leaders will go right just to the why and ignore the what and the how, or they'll just talk about what we're going to do next, and they'll ignore the why and the how, etc. So just adding a little bit of story, uh, and yes, there are all kinds of different useful structures for how to tell a story, helps people ground themselves in the wider context, the call to action, um, and why they are the hero of this story in terms of any actionable steps that they are going to take. So, for example, I, I was interviewing Neil Malarkey, famous uh, improviser uh, based in London, but we, we've all seen him in a lot of different movies. He's uh, the co-founder of the Comedy Store Players uh, in London Improv Group, and he works with people on you know, using better storytelling to help move people. And one example is, is he was working with a, a group from I believe Unilever, and they were talking about how do we better tell a story to get uh, to have people consider why they should be uh, convincing their retailers and their consumers to buy a certain kind of soap. They wanted to sell a certain soap that would help people, that would help children uh, actually want to wash their hands you know, m- more frequently. And of, at first when they were doing the exercise, everyone was just coming out with statistics. It wasn't a story. It was just sort of a, a waterfall of numbers. So then he said, okay, let's just actually put a little bit of structure you know, behind this and let's give us the why, the what and the how. So then one of the executives thought about it for a while and he said, every year, 2 million children under the age of five will die because they don't wash their hands from diarrhea. What do children want? They just wanna do something fun. They just wanna do something quick. They wanna wash their hands quickly and go away but they want something fun. Well, maybe if they wash their hands over say 20 seconds, the soap suds change color. And that tells them they spend enough time scrubbing. They won't die of diarrhea, they can go and play. And that's why we've invented Lifeboom, Soap for Life. This was a product that, that, that Unilever debuted in 2013 in India. And it was a huge success. And it wasn't just that the product was clever, but the stories they told around the idea were igniting. And that helped people to understand the. Import of it and help them to move to a purchase decision.
1: Thanks very much, Adam. I think it's important to keep in mind then that storytelling isn't just a communications tool for within your organization, but it's really part of your business strategy. So thanks very much for that. And just to end off, I think that no matter how much we say creativity is really important, and no matter how many books people read or podcasts they listen to, I think that they will still be leaders within some industries who just don't think that creativity is important at all. So if you could say one sentence to those people, what would you say to them?
0: Well, um, even if they don't think they're creative, surely there are moments in their life as an executive where they either are trying to figure out a new idea or to combine existing ideas in new ways. As a leader, you don't have to be a creative genius, but you do have to create the environment which, at where at that moment, that new idea can thrive.
1: Adam, thank you so much for joining us on the IMI Talking Leadership podcast today. There's a lot of food for thought within our conversation for people who are creative, people who are not so creative, and those who just want to bring that sense of creativity to their organizations. So thank you again. And thank you to everyone for listening. You can subscribe on SoundCloud or on your preferred podcast provider to ensure that you don't miss an episode. Until next time.